This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to episode 22. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story, A Chemical Whose Toxic Legacy Refuses to Go Away, reporter Carrie Arnold traveled to central Michigan to tell a story full of intergenerational tragedy and mystery. She joins us now. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. So uh, set the scene for us. Would you, uh, what happened in Michigan in the early 1970s and why is it still a problem? So what happened in the early 70s, sometime in late summer of 1973, there was a mix-up at a chemical plant in the town of St. Louis, Michigan, which has the nickname of the middle of the mitten. It's located in the geographic center of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. And Michigan Chemical was one of the biggest chemical factories production facilities in the state of Michigan at the time. And they produced a number of different chemicals, including a new flame retardant called polybrominated biphenyl, PBB, um, under the name of Firemaster. And it also produced supplements for cattle feed that they then shipped down to a plant in Battle Creek where it was mixed with other types of cow goodies into a, a cattle feed. And the magnesium oxide supplement that they made for cattle was called Nutramaster. All their products had some sort of name followed by master. Um, and when one of the drivers was loading the trucks to take the magnesium oxide down to Battle Creek, instead of grabbing a bag of Nutramaster, he grabbed bags of Firemaster. And ironically, the two different chemicals ended up looking very, very similar. They were both a, a silvery white pellet. Basically, the, the PBB had been mixed with a number of anti-caking agents so it could be mixed in with plastics more easily. So when the truck driver got to Battle Creek and unloaded all these big brown paper bags full of silvery white pellets, no one at the Michigan Farm Bureau mixing plant recognized that they had gotten the wrong shipment. And so what happened is this PBB flame retardant was actually mixed in with a whole bunch of cattle feed. And this, this sounds like such a small mistake, um, and yet it has very, very long legs. Um, c- can you talk about what happened after, after they mixed up these chemicals? Sure. So the Michigan Farm Bureau mixing plant outside of Battle Creek was one of the leading, if not the leading suppliers of cattle feed to dairy and beef farmers throughout the state of Michigan. So they'd received somewhere between 800 and 1,000 pounds of PBBs. And it got mixed into one of their most popular cattle 
feeds known as Dairy Ration 402. Magnesium oxide is really great for cows. It really increases their milk production. So dairy farmers all over the state were just clamoring for the stuff because it was really good. It really worked. And so PBB is also very potently toxic. It doesn't take a whole lot to really cause serious health effects. And another factor was that there was a lot of cross-contamination. So the Michigan Farm Bureau produced feed for sheep, feed for chickens, and they didn't necessarily really deep clean the different hoppers after they'd mixed the feeds because there was a lot of similar ingredients in all of them. And so PBB residue ended up getting mixed into a whole bunch of livestock feeds, and this was distributed all across the state. And so that's how really a small mix-up ended up contaminating a lot of the cattle throughout Michigan's Lower Peninsula. And then it also wound up contaminating people. Yes, because people either were exposed by just touching and handling the cattle feed People working in the Michigan chemical plant didn't have adequate safety gear. There were some internal documents showing that it was toxic, but they they figured, you know, it wasn't going to be entering the food chain, and so you didn't really have to, to worry about it. And so some of the plant workers were exposed, and also people who ate the contaminated beef and dairy and eggs and any sort of lamb, even pig, could also get sort of secondary exposure. PBB is not broken down by the body, and it's it's what's known as a lipophilic chemical, which means it really binds to fat and can be stored for decades in body fat. And so cow's milk has a very high fat content. Beef generally has a pretty high fat content. So, you know, eating these animal products could also expose people to PBB. So what kinds of health effects did we see from uh, people who ingested uh, PBBs? And I guess we should also ask what, what kinds of health effects did they, uh, did they lead to in the cattle? It was, it was really the cattle that got the highest doses, and it was initially discovered at a farm also outside of Battle Creek by a farmer called Rick Halbert, who had ordered just his own bags of what he thought was magnesium oxide. He, was, he had worked at Dow Chemical in Midland, Michigan, about 20 to 30 minutes west of St. Louis. And so he kind of mixed his own dairy feed with his background in, in chemistry and everything. And so his cows probably got the highest dosage. Each cow probably ate at least a half a pound of straight PBB. And so at first, his cows just stopped eating and they began losing weight. They also, their, their skin got really dry and cracked. They called it elephant skin. And there were hoof malformations, and the cows began really rapidly losing a lot of, of body weight and body fat, partly related to the fact that they weren't eating, but also probably as a side effect of the chemicals. And a number of his cattle had to be euthanized, and not surprisingly, they also stopped producing milk. 
farmers across the state were were seeing these effects in their livestock, but they were really hesitant to talk to each other about this. It was sort of the stiff upper lip culture among farmers at the time. They were also afraid to admit that anything might be wrong with their livestock because it could impact their ability to sell beef and milk and everything later on. So it was happening all across the state, but because farmers weren't necessarily talking to each other, no one realized that there was this huge chemical contamination going on. And so it wasn't until eight months to a year after Rick Halbert had first started noticing signs in his own cattle that the State Department of Agriculture and the FDA and the U.S. Department of Agriculture really became aware that anything had happened. As for people, um, some of the, the health effects were a little similar to what they had seen in livestock. Um, as with the cows, Halbert and other farmers had noticed an increased risk of miscarriage and spontaneous abortion. Um, a, a number of females reported having fertility issues, difficulties, getting pregnant and, and carrying a pregnancy to term. They also seemed to find a, a small but meaningful increase in breast cancer rates and among uh, thyroid disorders as well. And the health effects seem to be persisting to this day, although it's, uh, of course, becoming much harder to tell what's due to PBB and, and what might be due to other things. But can you talk about the, the family, the Hall family that uh, you open your story with? Uh, to tell us about them and why they're important. Sure. So Jim Hall, he grew up in the town of St. Louis. Um, he spent a lot of time with his grandparents that lived right across the street from the chemical plant. And his house was only a couple blocks away from it. And so any sort of the, the chemicals that the Michigan Chemical Company produced, any excess or any byproducts were dumped in the local river. They used that basically as their personal sewer system. And there was also airborne residue. And so he grew up in the town of St. Louis. He had heard about the PBB issue when it happened. And obviously, when a number of years later, when the chemical plant shut down, but he, he really wasn't thinking a whole lot of it. About 10 years after the chemical plant had shut down in St. Louis, his brother was diagnosed with lymphoma, and it was part of a cluster of cancers in the town of Breckenridge, which is about five miles directly west of St. Louis. No one really found a cause of the cancer cluster. One of the chemical companies tried to suggest that it was due to increased navy bean consumption, which just seems kind of ridiculous. And then Jim Hall himself ended up um, diagnosed with thyroid cancer. They found nodules all over his thyroid. 
But one of the main reasons that I focused on him as a character was due to his daughter, who was born in 2003. Her name was Jera, and Jera was born with a congenital heart defect. It was one of those exceedingly rare, one-in-a-billion kinds of events, and she never quite seemed to thrive, although she was a very happy baby, happy toddler. And at two years and two months old, she ultimately passed away as a result of her heart condition. Um, She spent more than half of her life in the hospital at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And we should emphasize this is a child who was born more than 30 years after this contamination happened. Uh, It's clear that she didn't consume any products that that were contaminated with PBB. So what's the thinking here? How could she have been affected by this toxic event? And this is the really the, the crux of the story and what scientists are discovering. It's a, a type of inheritance called epigenetic inheritance. And usually when we think of inheritance, the, the genes we get from our, our mother and father We think about actual genes in the DNA, those billions of A's, T's, G's, and C's. And for for most of us, that really is what we inherit. But there's, there's another layer of information in our genome that's not so much the order of the letters themselves, but rather how they're regulated, how they're switched on and off. And this type of regulation is called epigenetics. Epi means on top of or in addition to. So it's not just your DNA, but how it's switched on and off. So you can think about it as the lights in your house. The light bulbs themselves are the DNA. It's the, you, you can have a 45-watt bulb or a 60-watt bulb or a fluorescent bulb or an LED or a traditional incandescent, but the epigenetic regulations are how they're turned on and off, and it can also be create kind of like a dimmer switch of you know just how much of a particular gene is turned into a protein. And This type of epigenetics was discovered in the 1950s and 60s, and initially researchers believed that right after fertilization, all the epigenetic marks that might have been from the mother and the father were wiped clean. And this happened very early in embryonic development. And so each child was, in a way, considered to be a fairly blank slate from an epigenetic standpoint. But as time went on, researchers began discovering more and more exceptions to this rule that some epigenetic marks might be retained. And in 2005, uh, a researcher named Michael Skinner at Washington State University began to provide some of the first evidence in mice that these epigenetic markers could be inherited through multiple generations. So from parents to children and to grandchildren and even possibly great-grandchildren. And also importantly, he discovered that different chemicals create different epigenetic fingerprints, so to speak, Um, that they have a very specific pattern of genes being switched on and off. 
So with that, as researchers in Michigan and a epidemiologist at Emory University named Michelle Marcus, who began taking over some of the Michigan State Health Department research on some of the individuals exposed to PBB in the 1970s, as she began taking over some of this research and tracking health effects in the children and grandchildren of the people initially exposed to PBB, people like Jarrah Hall, um, you know, she began seeing these health effects and she began wondering whether it might not be an example of transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. And so that's currently the project that she's working on right now is trying to see if she can show if she can find epigenetic signatures of PBB exposure, and then if she can show that these are inherited through multiple generations. So it's a hypothesis at this point. Uh, do, do the scientists you spoke to have any sense of when we will know uh, whether this happened or not in Michigan? They're, they're hoping to have early results in 2019 or 2020. I'm not sure whether they're doing any animal results to show if this in, does in fact happen in animals, although it's definitely been shown in very chemically similar compounds. So there's, there's very good reason to believe that it is going on, but it really isn't, there's not enough data to say for sure that it's happening in humans. When we talk about environmental disasters in Michigan, everybody thinks about Flint, of course, where, where uh, people are still dealing with poisons in their drinking water. Potentially, this situation affects even more people. Um, and yet, I have to say, it totally came as news to me when I read your story. How did you learn about it, and why isn't it more broadly known? Um, it's funny that you say it came as news to you. I mean, I grew up in Michigan. I was born just a few years after the PBB event, and I had never heard of it. And I have a degree in epidemiology from the University of Michigan, and I had never heard of it. My parents lived in Michigan at the time, and I asked them if, you know, what they remembered, and they said, what, what PBB? It sounds vaguely familiar, but I couldn't tell you anything more. And so part of the reason that it's really not that well known is that it largely affected rural farmers. These are not areas with major media outlets. And it was hard for reporters to get to the area. And it was pretty widespread. It wasn't focused in an individual area. So it wasn't like you could go and visit town X and get a story. You had to basically travel around the whole state to really get an idea of just how widespread it was. And so it really wasn't seen as much of an interest to people in cities like Detroit, where there weren't that many farms around. And so it was seen largely as a farm issue, not as a human health issue. Except people in cities like Detroit were drinking the milk and eating the meat from uh, uh, these contaminated animals. Yeah, I mean, there were a few, there were some news stories. It wasn't like there was no coverage, but there really wasn't the the coverage that you would have expected that a disaster like this would have warranted. So how did you find out about it? 
It was actually, I was speaking with a physician who had done his residency in Michigan. I was speaking with him for a completely unrelated story. And he was commenting about how something was similar to, quote unquote, that whole PBB thing. And I asked him, what PBB thing? And he told me the story. And that's when I immediately just became obsessed with this whole story because I couldn't believe that I had lived for 27 years in Michigan and I had never heard of this. So many unresolved issues in this story, Carrie. Do you think there's any chance that this will have some kind of happy ending someday? I think they're they're working towards some sort of resolution. The EPA is finally getting around to cleaning up the main uh, chemical plant in St. Louis, Michigan, after years and years and years of wrangling. It will probably be one of the most expensive Superfund sites in the whole country and in the history of the almost 40 years of the Superfund program to clean up, but they're actually finally getting around to doing that. And for the town, even if they can't erase the effects of the pollution from their DNA, they can at least begin to move forward as a community and hopefully not be known as the the toxic town of Michigan. And it sounds like the uh, whole epigenetic question, uh, while very much up in the air now, is on its way to being resolved? Yes. And the reason that the, the PBB study is such a good way of testing this hypothesis is that the PBBs were only manufactured in the United States and specifically at this one particular plant in St. Louis for a very short period of time. And the food distribution systems of the time meant that basically everything stayed within the state of Michigan. And so it's this very limited exposure period with a very defined population. So it's much easier to find a group of unexposed individuals that might have, you know, other farm families or other chemical factory workers that may have been exposed to similar, other similar nasties in the environment, but would not have had that PBB exposure. And so that's one of the reasons that researchers are really excited about this work is because it's much easier to find a control group and to really be able to show for a specific chemical exposure that this has been going on. Well, Carrie Arnold, thanks so much for reporting this story for Undark and coming on the podcast to tell us about it. Thanks for having me. Carrie Arnold is a science and environment reporter based in Virginia, although, as she mentioned, she's a native of Michigan. She's a contributing editor at Nova Next and Mosaic Science. Her work has been published in the journals Nature and Science, and now in Undark, where you can find her report on PBB contamination at undark.org. Just scroll down to Case Studies.
Joining us, as always, is Seth Mnookin to talk about science in the media. Hello, Seth. Hello, David. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. And believe it or not, this is our last podcast of 2017. I, I actually believe it. Okay, well, uh, sort of less believable is what kind of year it's been, and I wanted to ask you to kind of revisit a few of the stories that we talked about uh, over the course of 2017. Uh, why don't we start with, um, you know, what is perhaps the hottest button issue of the year, and that is sexual harassment, and particularly when it comes to science. Would you talk about that? Yeah. You know, obviously we've been, over the last couple of months, going through a really incredible reckoning, a a nationwide reckoning, uh, and it seems that this is going on in, uh, you know, not every industry so far, but a a really high number of industries and a lot of high-profile, very high-profile people uh, are being affected. What One of the things that's really interesting about this is, in some ways, uh, the, the, the science community and science journalism in particular uh, was kind of ahead of the curve on this um, in that it's been now a couple of years that uh, we've seen a number of really hard-hitting stories about inappropriate and really, in some cases, shocking behavior taking place in laboratories um, with principal investigators or professors harassing graduate students or other employees. Uh, we've seen some of this in the science journalism community, uh, although not as much as we have seen at least reports so far in, in the science community. Um, so it's been it's just been interesting to me to see the the reckoning that's been going on with men like Harvey Weinstein and, and Matt Lauer uh, and Al Franken, um, that some of this was was actually happening, you know, a year or more ago in the scientific community. What do you think is behind the fact that some of this uh, bad behavior uh, was brought to light years ago in uh, in the science and science media uh, and hasn't really boiled up uh, since uh, this uh, Harvey Weinstein story brought everything into the national conscience. Are science journalists just more enlightened than other journalists? I would say no. And in fact, it, you know, it, the, the, when, when those stories started coming out, it wasn't because um, the science journalism community as a whole was started to all of a sudden get enlightened about this. It was really because there were a couple of reporters and a couple of outlets, um, namely BuzzFeed, uh, that, that really went after this. Um, so I, I don't think it's that science journalism is particularly enlightened. In fact, when some of these stories came out, the reaction from science journalists who'd been covering some of these figures for years and years was not quite being an apologist, but kind of treading pretty close to that line. Let's turn to another story that uh, we spoke about several times during the course of the year, and that is another science magazine, a very highly regarded one called Nautilus. Uh, What's the story there? 
Yeah, so Nautilus, um, I think when it launched a couple of years ago, was uh, was something that a lot of people were very heartened by and felt very optimistic about. Um, it was uh, producing really, really high quality work. Um, it was a print publication that was gorgeous, printed on heavy stock paper, um, and uh, and doing the type of long form narrative work that I think people had been concerned um, was going to be less prevalent in, in the always evolving media landscape. Um, unfortunately, over the last eight or 10 months, uh, that story has really soured. Um, Undark did a story about eight months ago um, detailing how a number of, uh, of Nautilus writers had not been paid, um, some of them for over a year, uh, and the total amount of money that these writers wrote was in the tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and what was, I think, really shocking about that was that while this was going on, Nautilus was continuing to actively solicit new work from other writers without telling those writers about the difficulties that they'd had uh, in, 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 in paying people with whom they had contracts and, and contracts that the writers had fulfilled. Um, it's now eight months later, and the same thing is still happening. Um, Nautilus has continued to solicit uh, new work. Those writers have still not been paid. Um, and I think that any uh, any sort of goodwill that the publication might have built up has, has really disappeared within the science writing community. What Nautilus has said is that they'll have no chance to pay off their debts um, unless they continue to try and publish and raise money and, and, and uh, sell subscriptions and everything else. Um, while I am not completely unsympathetic to that point of view, uh, I think the fact that they are not informing new writers about the difficulties that they've had, um, I, I just think there's no excuse for that whatsoever. Another story that was very big earlier in the year and is kind of faded, at least from uh, the media that I have seen, is that big March for Science on Washington back in uh, late winter or early spring of this year. I guess it was uh, early spring in April. Uh, remind us what the March for Science was and uh, whether uh, there's been any follow-up since then. Well, so the March for Science was largely a response to uh, the political climate in the election and concern that um, that we were entering into a period in this country in which science was not being valued, um, in which uh, not only policy decisions, um, but actually decisions about what research to fund were, were being made according to uh, preconceived notions of, of, of what people wanted to be true. Um, and so there was this pretty significant march in Washington, D.C., um, uh, called the March for Science. Um, I think it's true that that did not launch uh, sort of movement um, the way that there was also a woman's march uh, in Washington this year. Um, and I think that the 
sort of aftershocks of that are, are, are things that were still being felt, included, including in, in the conversations about sexual harassment, um, uh, but also about gender equality and representation. Um, I think one of the reasons that the March for Science didn't have that same effect was because even at the time, its, its goals and purpose were a little bit more inchoate. Um, it was unclear exactly because I think one of the reasons was they didn't want to, the organizers of the march, and I think in general, the scientific community didn't want to set itself up in opposition to, uh, to the administration or to Congress, um, because those still were going to be the people that were controlling the grants. Um, so I think that's one reason. Another reason that I think we have not seen that sort of coalesce into a movement is because there have not been the across the board research cuts that I think some people feared. Um, there, you know, there's been a lot of extremely concerning uh, um, decisions made surrounding climate science, um, surrounding what gets funded, uh, surrounding even what type of research proposals um, uh, you can write and submit. Um, the same has not been true at the NIH, for instance, where you know they have not seen a, a slashing of their budget, and there was some concern about that. Um, and so I think that uh, because of that, it's hard to sort of get a, a, a broad movement of people agitating um, towards both greater representation uh, for science at the table, but also just for more valuing of science, um, because there is this concern of, of alienating people who still do have the, the power to make these decisions and still could uh, take funding away from, from things like the NIH. Yeah, and uh, denial of uh, uh, human-caused climate change is certainly alive and well. Uh, in Washington, and I'm sure that's something we will be talking more about uh, in the coming 12 months. Yeah, I think that what is is more likely to, to sort of coalesce is um, is a movement surrounding climate science specifically. And traditionally, there has been a, a, a sort of divide between activists and scientists, not always, obviously, and not in every circumstance, but um, for, uh, you know, speaking um, in broad generalizations, uh, I think scientists like to treat their work as research and research that is not um, uh, is not intended to advance uh, any specific cause. Um, I think that we might see that changing a little bit because the denial of human-based climate change and the lack of EPA enforcement, the taking um, federally owned protected lands and, and, and deprotecting them, um, there are a lot of things that really directly go against all of the prevailing science. And so I think you could see that those, those researchers become even more politicized. But at the moment, I, I would be surprised if that happened on a broader level. So, uh, Seth, you got a um, crystal ball app on your smartphone. Any other big stories you think we'll be talking about in the uh, months to come? 
Um, I, I think one thing that the last, uh, you know, 15 months has shown us is that uh, it is a fool's errand to try and predict the future at this point in time. Um, uh, you know, I think that one thing we have not talked about this year, which could have a potentially enormous impact um, on the future of science and scientific research is the tax bill uh, and the fact that that could add, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars to graduate students' uh, um, bills because it, uh, of the way it would potentially classify tuition waivers as income. That would take graduate school from something that is a difficult proposition uh, for a lot of people to something that could be a, an impossible proposition. Um, so, you know, we want to talk about something that 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line could have enormous repercussions. I think that's one story that we'll be looking at. Um, uh, I think also we will see more of a reckoning in science and in science journalism um, about the lack of gender diversity and the lack of diversity in general at top levels in labs, um, among tenured faculty, uh, among editors of, of science sections. So I think those are two stories that, that we could see bubbling up um, for sure, along with, I think, climate change, the coverage of climate change um, and how climate change is discussed will obviously continue to be a, a huge story next year. Seth Mnookin is our media and science commentator. He's the author of a number of books about science and journalism, including The Panic Virus, and he's director of the Graduate Program in Science Writing at MIT. Seth, as always, thanks and Happy New Year. Yes, thanks to you, and I will talk to you in 2018. What does it mean to be alive? There's a scientific definition, but it doesn't quite get at the whole picture. In the second installment of this two-part feature, reporter Randy Scott Carroll takes us on a journey to explore a question humans have pondered for centuries. How old is he in that picture? That was uh, probably, that was right before Right before the accident, I believe. I'm at the home of Raymond Will in Sellersville, PA. He's showing me pictures of his son, Mark. Mark was an engineer with a couple of kids and an ex-wife. It was Friday, March 24, 1995. They were running tests for an environmental-friendly Freon. And as he looked to his left to read the gauges... It blew up. There were the compressor about the size of your, the alternator in your car, weighing about 15 pounds, was under 350 PSI. And when he turned to his left to read the gauges, it went and hit him right above the right eye. I'm visiting with Raymond to further understand the definition of life. If you remember from our last episode, it isn't as clearly laid out as I had thought. And Raymond's son Mark blurs that definition even more by teetering between life and death in what's known as a persistent vegetative state, a place that isn't legally considered death, but isn't quite alive either. And it lasted nearly four years. 
Well, it was March 24th of 1995 till December the 22nd, 1998, but three years and nine months. For those first few years, they thought maybe he would come back. But eventually... I was working and I got a call from uh, his doctor. I forget exactly what her words were, but better come over. So I got my wife and I called uh, his siblings. And uh, so we were there when he took his last breath. I ask Raymond how he defines life and death, now having been through everything with his son. I had talked to one of Mark's doctors on more than one occasion about that, and nobody really knows. My belief now is that the Spirit of God and my spirit communicates. When that communication is broken, or when that communication is no longer available, even though the heart is pumping and there's breath, I think that's death, when there's no communication. At what point do you think that that communication for Mark ended? When that uh, compressor hit him in the head. For many people, like Raymond, the definition of life is deeply entwined with a kind of spiritual connection. But for Joseph Brizendine, things are a lot more secular. Life emerged because the Earth was building up potential energy, and it had to go somewhere. So in the same way that hurricanes occur, when energy builds up in a concentrated form, it has to find a way to dissipate, to produce entropy, to disperse. Joseph is a biophysicist and a science writer. The chemistry that sustains life emerged on this planet for those reasons alone. It had nothing to do with the desire of matter to be alive. That's like, that was never in the agenda. It was all physics. But even though Joseph's definition maybe feels a lot more scientific than Raymond's, he admits even his explanation falls short in answering the question of what it means to be alive. It's not physically impossible to give a completely clear answer to when and where life emerges and evolves. Uh, but we don't have that yet. He says life isn't a collection of things we see or believe about something, with checkboxes we can easily cross off. It's a lot messier than that. He says life is living. It's something that things do. Things are alive because of what they do, and from that perspective, whether it was made out of carbon or silicon or anything like that, if there's an arrangement of matter anywhere in the universe that is growing and responding in a meaningful way, in a goal-oriented way to its environment, then, I, then those structure, that structure is alive in my mind, uh, no question, because of what it's doing. Before I leave Raymond's house, he shares with me something he's learned since Mark's accident. Much like Joseph's own interpretation of life, Raymond says it's not the definition that matters, but what you do with it. I think uh, if I could add one more thing is that uh, life is not only communication, but if we can do something to help somebody else along in whatever way we can do it, I, I think that's a big thing in life as well. This has been a Prismatic Radio production. For Undark, I'm Randy Scott Carroll.
And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. Special thanks to Adriana Gallo. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark.